Hosea chapter 9, page 755 in the Bibles in front of you. Um, I know we've done a lot of different announcements today, uh, but I want to say this before we get going in this chapter. Um, Hosea is not the easiest book. Um, It's got a lot of sharp edges. And one of the things that I am deeply grateful for is that you're the type of church that wants to go through the whole Bible. Um, and so I just want to thank you. Um, I, I've been holding off on doing this. I've, I've done a few thank yous over the years where I've, I, I serenaded you with the Rod Stewart song like seven years ago. Um, I pulled out a Jodeci music video and dressed up with like a white scarf and gloves and sang to you. Um, I couldn't think of any more songs or maybe I was worried about getting fired. But, um, so, but I just want to say thank you. I, it's, it is, it's actually a rare and wonderful thing to be in, in a church community that just loves the word of God. And all of God's word is so precious and so good, um, but, but you love it. And so I just want to thank you. And I, I hope that you're deeply encouraged by that as we go. And this isn't to butter you up for Hosea 9, but it is a very hard chapter. <laughs> it's a very sharp chapter, and yet we're hungry for the word of God. And so I just hope that you're encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that every character in it, not just every syllable, every single letter is divinely ordained. That in your brilliance and your generosity, you have spoken. Your word is so profitable through the work of the spirit, applying it into our lives to to teach us, to yes, rebuke us, to correct us and to train us in righteousness that we might be complete, lacking in nothing. And so as we come to your word, as we do every week, I ask that you might make us hungry for it. You'd help us know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And you grant us a humility. You'd help us to bend our knees beneath it. And oh Lord, what we need every time we gather more than anything else is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus Christ. So might you use this text to point to him? Might you use our songs as we sing our theology confessionally together, as we receive communion, as we have conversations, as we pray? Might you use all of these things to reform our hearts after Christ? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, just a couple weeks ago, Thursday, May 5th, my alarm clock goes off 4 a.m., and I sprung out of bed immediately. No snooze button, nothing. I jumped in my car that had a full tank of gas. I jumped on I-5, and I began to drive to Pullman. So I went from one corner of the state to the other corner of the state to, to drive all the way to Pullman and all the way back in one day. Didn't complain once. I was so excited. Now, for you, you might not think that's a big deal. You might like road trips. I don't like road trips. I don't understand why people like road trips. I like getting to places that I want to go to, but sitting in a car driving for 600 miles does not sound like something that I would want to do. But I did it because I was bringing my daughter home from college. It was awesome. It was awesome. Like, I just was so excited. I don't want to drive, but you know what? I really wanted to see my baby girl, give her a hug, and bring her home for the summer. 
we're going to look at a passage today that powerfully illustrates a really big idea. We are driven by what we delight in. We are driven by what we desire. We're going to look at how what we desire profoundly shapes the type of people we are and the things that we do. More simply, we might be able to say it like this. You are or you become what you love. Look at three specific things as we go through Hosea 9. You are what you love. You might not love what you think. And you can learn to love what you should. You are what you love. You might not love what you think. You can learn to love what you should. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We will read the entire chapter here of Hosea chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You've loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them, and all who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be there for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, Nedo shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet's a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways in hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarried womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Feel free to grab a seat. Kind of wishing you skip this Sunday, eh? Should have had a guest preacher. Um, I should be honest, chapter nine is, is really bleak. 
And one of the questions we might ask is, how did things get so bad? Where'd they go wrong? I would suggest to you that verse 10 gives us a really important answer. And the, the first half of, of verse 10 is, is really the history of God's people in half a verse. It's the history of Israel in, in half a verse. I found you like grapes in the wilderness. So, and, and the language of this is, you know, when you picture a desert landscape, this would be like an oasis of, of something so delightful. God is saying, when I, when I claimed you, my people, when I found you, I delighted in you like a journeyer in the desert who came upon fresh produce. And yet you forgot me. I had such joy in you. Yet, as verse 1 says, you forsook me. That's the history of God's people in half a verse. God's grace are wandering. And then the end of the verse, we get this massive insight. It says that, um, that they devoted themselves, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And we'll unpack all this. But I want you to hear this line. And this is the same thing that said a very similar thing in, I believe, Psalm 135. But, and they became detestable like the thing they loved. I got the title of this sermon from a book by James Smith, You Are What You Love. And in an interview with Smith, he unpacks this idea of you are what you love. He kind of compares it to like, you know, we've all heard the phrase, you are what you eat. And he says, you know, that the person who, who has a predilection or a desire for broccoli is oftentimes a, a very different type of person than has a desire for, you know, twice fried Twinkies. You can apply that however you want. If you be the person that desires broccoli sounds boring. I want to hang out with the twice fried Twinkie person. And you're like, that person's arteries are going to clog and they're going to die. But, but you get the picture that, you know, you are what you eat. You are what you love. And throughout this sermon, I'm going to just try to emphasize that one big takeaway. We become what we love. I'm a bit of an Instagram lurker. Um, it's true. Um, and I follow almost only people in this church. So that maybe even makes it worse. Make your accounts private. Um, so, but, but I do it because I, I really love to just get these little snapshots of stuff happening in your lives. And, oh, hey, we're, we're pregnant. We just had an anniversary. Oh, I got to do TV. You know, whatever. Um, I don't know why you would put that on Instagram, but so all the thieves can come. Um, but, but it's just, a, it's, it's helpful just to see what's going on in people's lives. And I came across someone's post from this last week that was quoting St. Clair of Assisi, and it captures the same thing Smith is saying. It captures what verse 10 is saying. It captures what went wrong for Israel. St. Clair says it like this, we become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things... We become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. It's massive to get this. This principle of you are what you love works both ways. It can be very positive or it can be very negative. Hosea 9 is a really negative example. They became detestable like the thing they loved. And then all of these tragic consequences that, that come from it. Smith's book begins chapter 1. What do you love? It asks this question. What do you love? And then he draws attention to Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's actually the first thing that Jesus asks. 
There's two disciples that, or two, two guys that are going to become his disciples. And Jesus begins this conversation with them. And he says, what are you seeking? He actually doesn't say, what do you believe? He doesn't say, what do you want to do? He says, what do you want? What do you want? And then he goes on, Smith goes on in chapter 2. And he makes this insight. This is the title of chapter 2. You might not love what you think. I would say, if you read this book, it's one of the more important chapters because it highlights something that can be so true for us. That there can be this, un, we can be unaware of the disconnect between what we say we love and what we actually love. What we say we want and what we actually want. And one of the key ways to see what we do in fact love is to look at what we do. His whole book is about habits. It's about how habits form us and understanding the way liturgies shape us. But he says, as we look at our habits, what are the everyday patterns of our lives, that in that we begin to see a bit, we get an insight and a glimpse into what we actually love. Hosea 9 shows what Israel truly loved, and it was not God. I would suggest to you that Hosea, one of the functions that it has in in the biblical canon, and one of the reasons it's so helpful is it highlights something that is a real danger. We can think we love God when we don't. It would be a huge mistake to think that the Israel of Hosea's day didn't think about God often. Or that they weren't religious or busy doing religious. They they actually were. The the book of Hosea shows that. They, they, They had this veneer. But it was so mingled and corrupted with surrounding cultural practices that it revealed that their hearts were not truly in it. They loved ceremonies and the traditions of faith. They believed, they actually believed, if you go back a couple chapters earlier, maybe in the last chapter, that they they actually believed wholeheartedly that they knew God. But they didn't. They're so self-deluded. It's one of the reasons that Hosea, they talk about the prophet in this chapter is like a fool. He's like a madman. Even the mouthpiece of God, they're unwilling to listen to. And I know that's weighty. I know that's weighty. Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hosea, he draws out the context of Hosea 9 and what this is. So if you go to the the first verse here, it's, it's this picture of uh, verses one and two that the context is probably the, the fall or the autumn festival. It's like the harvest festival, the feast of booths. This is the time at the end of planting of the crops and the summer comes. This is when they go and they harvest the produce. And this was uh, historically in Israel's uh, life. This was a really big festival. It's a big ceremony of celebrating. Look what God has done. Look how he has provided for us. Um, it was a party. It was a huge party. But over the, the years, Israel had modified it. What they'd done is to begin to draw in some of the surrounding nation's practices and insert those in. And that's what we see here in verse 1, this, this picture of they played the whore, forsaking their God. They loved to process wage on fleshing floors. It's saying instead of living in tents the way you were meant to, to remember that you're wandering in the wilderness, you basically did a, you did a big giant hoedown. And you began to honor pagan gods. I kind of, I thought about it like this. They sprinkled all sorts of pagan practices and what used to be a festival set apart to God, it was like spring break in Cancun. But all in the name of God. So remember, it was like 14-ish years ago, 
I was in Starbucks off of Bakerview, and it was the Christmas season, and I'm sitting in the Starbucks, and it's all, you know, decorated with Merry Christmas, and they got the Christmas blend, and they have all the red and the green, and, and then on the speakers, I love Christmas hymns. I love the theology of veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. I mean, that is some rich, rich theology. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And you hear these, these lyrics. You hear these lyrics, and I just kept wondering, how many people in this room that are listening to this, that are saying Merry Christmas, that are celebrating Christmas, actually believe what it represents? Richard Phillips, in his commentary, he goes on, and he makes a similar observation about Christmas, and he says, many Americans are more than happy to live without Christ, but don't take away their Christmas. That was Israel. That was Israel at this time at least the majority of Israel. Hosea 9 is a low-light reel of Israel's disobedience. My sister-in-law, she loves to do this on birthdays. She's all right, give me three highlights and three lowlights. And my response always to her is, well, that question is one of my lowlights annually. Um, and she laughs, and I laugh, and she rolls her eyes. Um, but Hosea 9 is a low-light reel. Let me walk through it quickly. Verse 9, the day's... Of Gibeah, um, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, and I will remember their iniquity. The days of Gibeah, it's a reference back to this book called Judges, and probably chapters 19 and following. And I won't unpack the scene that happened in chapter 19, but it's probably one of the most horrific, violent, evil scenes in the Bible. And the Bible's got a lot of stuff. And um, it's just this rampant, rampant sexual sin. Um, but there's this refrain that happens at the beginning of Judges and the end of Judges that explains the horrific things that happen throughout the books of Judges. And it's this, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God's people were living without reference to God. He didn't matter. So we go into verse 10, and it talks about Baal Peor. This is a reference back to Numbers chapter 25. It's okay if you don't know these references. I'll just give you little, little snippets. But it's amazing to see how the Bible all interconnects. It's one of the reasons you can spend your whole life immersing yourself in it. Um, but Numbers 25, um, there is this kind of false prophet for hire named uh, uh, Balaam, and he was hired to curse God's people, but it didn't work. He couldn't curse God's people because God's people had been blessed. And so then uh, King Balak of Moab um, had sent Balaam to do this. And so after it didn't work, Balaam comes to the king and says, hey, I got a different strategy. Why don't you do this? Why don't you send some of the women of Moabite out to seduce the men of Israel? And then through them hooking up, what will, what will happen is they'll begin to worship your God instead of their God. And tragically, it worked, and judgment came, and 24,000 people died. What was happening here in Israel is that they were hedging their bets. They're basically like, okay, we believe there's a God, but we're not sure he can provide enough. We don't know if he can provide enough prosperity. We don't know if he can provide our national security. And so what we'll do is we'll say, like, God, you're great, but we're also going to look for other leaders and rulers and other deities that we can also kind of connect with in order to make sure that we're protected and okay. And, and so, like, the context of a harvest celebration, well, Baal was, among many things, is this Canaanite God was, was seen as responsible for fertility, so for crops, for, for children. And so they, they give themselves not just to God, but also to this pagan god, Baal. God wasn't enough. Man, we could unpack this a ton of ways. 
Um, first, I'll keep going though. Low light rule. Verse 15. It reaches back into Israel's history as well. Down in verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. It's there I began to hate them. That's, that's some significant, significant language. Gilgal um, was the place, if you go back to 1 Samuel 11, that's where Israel decided to make their first king. This is when they put Saul in, in place. And the issue with that, if you go back to that story, what you'll find is what they were doing was, was not just wanting a king. They were rejecting God from being their king. They wanted to be like the surrounding nations. They said, we need to have a tangible king in front of us because you're not enough. Where did it get them? I'll give you two. There's, there's a lot in this chapter that we could unpack, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. The first one is this. Here's where, I, here's where it got them. Emptiness. This whole chapter is a chapter of, of hollowness. They've been hollowed out. Their faith had been hollowed out, and then the results of that hollowed out faith was a hollowed out existence. The harvest celebration was this symbolic event of, okay, are we going to have enough to make it through the winter? Is there going to be enough food? Is there going to be enough oil? Is there going to be enough grapes to make wine to carry us through the winter? Until we... Verse 4, they shall not pour out drink offering a wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not plead them. It shall be like mourner's bread. The things they were used to worship the God are emptied of their meaning. Verse 6, for behold, the days are coming when they are going to go away to destruction. Egypt will gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Neto shall possess their precious things of silver. Basically, they're going to be carried off from their land, and, and, and the, the thorns and thistles are just going to take over again. Verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. They went to Baal for fertility, but they got the opposite. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken, the root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Emptiness is always where forsaking the Lord gets us. That's one of the great messages of Hosea. We can maybe say it like this, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Always. The problem is sometimes the, the underdelivering comes later after we've already given ourselves to, to sin. I was... Um, when Emma, when she started at Wazoo, and she's making new friends, and we're just talking about, so, you know, how's it going, and what sorts of stuff are, you know, do your friends like, and how, you know, and, and she made a huge range of friends, so proud of her, just tons of different friends, and, and she, she had a group of friends that she said, you know, yeah, Dad, you know, actually, I got this group of friends, and they're, they're, they're really, they, they definitely are into partying, they're kind of enjoying, and hey, we're out of, uh, we're out of mom and dad's house, and now we can drink all the White Claw we want, um, and uh, <laughs> maybe it's, I've never had White Claw, I'm sure it's fantastic, I guess, um, but so, you know, I love White Claw, um, and uh, you got to get a little humor. We're in Hosea 9. Um, but then she said, yeah, and they actually, like, they, they meet guys on Tinder all the time. And, uh, and I was like, really? She's like, yeah. So, so like, 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 Tinder, Tinder? Like, like, yeah, I mean, they're actually, like, meeting guys and, and hooking up. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, honey. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I, it just landed on me how awkward this would have been for me, for Emma, to hear her dad ask this question. So, Emma, is that something you'd like to do? <laughs> We're trying to have a good relationship. And uh, it's like, Emma, is that something that you're interested in? Please, Lord, say no. I was like, I think what I said was, does that sound fun to you? And she goes, Dad, it's not even fun to them. 
And the sad thing is they know it, yet they keep doing it. Sin just empties us out. Something else it gives us. It's exile or uh, estrangement. Hosea 9 is really sad in and of itself, but it's even sadder when you understand Israel's history. What makes it more tragic is this. There was this wonderful event called the Exodus where God came to his people who were enslaved and in captivity in Exodus and through his mighty, gracious, grand intervention, he emancipates them out of slavery. He comes and he ransoms them out. He, he gives his, his very real presence. He brings them out. He comes to this, this wonderful event, this cataclysmic event at the Red Sea where he parts the sea. God's people go through. He brings judgment upon the pursuing, pursuing Egyptian armies as the water goes back over. He leaves them in the wilderness. He feeds them. He waters them. He, he cares for them. He brings them into a land. And the, the refrain of the Bible is it's, it's flowing with milk and honey. He brings them into cities they did not build. He brings them into villages they did not build. He lets them feast on crops they did not plant. He gives them a place. He makes them a people. He is their God. Look at verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Tim Chester, in his commentary, summarizes like this, the exodus is reversed. The exodus is undone. They're back in slavery. And that is what happened to the northern tribes. That's what happened to Israel, is is Assyria came in and took over their land. And they went into captivity. We see this throughout this chapter, verses 5. What will you do on the day of the appointed feast and on the day of the feast of the Lord. The, the reason that's asked is you're no longer in your land. You're no longer able to worship the Lord here. You're going to have to worship him from a, from a foreign place. For behold, the days are going, they are, for behold, they, they are going away from destruction. Egypt shall gather them. Or verse down in 15, every evil of theirs is Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. That word hate, that's a, that's a big word, but it's actually used in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, the, 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 it's specifically applied to the sort of feeling that happens between spouses before they get divorced. Emptiness, exile, estrangement, it's just sad. And I was thinking about all that Israel had received and to think of all that they're losing. I came across this article about 10 lottery winners um, 10 different people's stories about winning the lottery. And for every single person, it changed their lives. No doubt it changed their lives, but not everyone for, for good. There was uh, one guy, Michael Carroll. Um, he won almost $15 million in 2002. He was 19. He started living it up. Um, started partying, started building multiple, multiple relationships with multiple women, even though he was married. He made some poor investments. Um, he ended up going bankrupt in 2003, and his wife left him. Israel was given so much, and they just threw it away. And here's why. They loved the wrong thing. They loved the wrong thing. All right, is there any way for us to assess what we actually love? <laughs> 
Yes, yes. Um, it, you can hear it in what you say for sure, but one of the things the Bible will continue to go back to is you, you see it in the patterns of your life and the reason you're doing the things that you're doing. James Smith, I'll do a couple of different quotes here. I think this is kind of helpful. I think, not kind of, I think it is helpful. James Smith says it like this, and you are what you love. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Or he goes on, um, your deepest desire, he observes. I read this a number of years ago. I forget who the he references, and I couldn't find it. So, um, But your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. And then Smith comments on it. He says, this is because our action, our doing, it bubbles up from our loves. Or David Wells in his book, God in the World, when as Jonathan Edwards observed a long time ago, we act on our strongest motive. If our strongest motive, our deepest desire is to know God, it will generate the discipline that we need to pursue this because we will want to know God more than anything else. If this is not our strongest motive, I think this is such a key insight here. If this is not our strongest motive, we will find ourselves with multiple alternative and competing foci. These will inevitably distract us. That's what happened to Israel. And it's what happens to us. And that's one of the reasons Hosea is a gift from God, even though it's got sharp edges, is it says, oh, distraction is everywhere. Just be aware of it. Judson, my son Judson, he is the most devoted Tottenham Hotspurs fan I've ever met in my life. They played at 4 a.m. this morning. He was up at 4 a.m. He put himself to bed. Brandon's going to lose his mind over here. Go Spurs, right? Oh, when the Spurs go, we'll start singing, right? So, so like he knows all the chants and the songs, and he walks around the house singing all the Spurs songs. He's wearing the jerseys. If it's game day, he's always sporting the gear. He knows the history of the managers. He watches. He watches like these, these, these uh, news reports. He listens to podcasts on like all the transfer news. Like they have these little transfer windows when teams can shift players around. He knows who they might get. He knows their formations. He knows what, I mean, he knows every stat. It's like he's the manager of the Spurs. He is a super fan. We become what we love. He loves that team. It's just an easy picture. You are what you eat. What do you love? What do you want? What do you daydream about? What do you sacrifice for? What do you spend resources on? What, what, what gets you really excited? What are you working for? And let's be honest, the answer to that can be really, really mixed, for sure. For sure, and God gives, we can have multiple desires, but what's the controlling one? What do you want it to be? Let me give a little bit of a caution, a little bit of a uh, pause in this. Um, you can pass this test. Amen? You can actually, you're like, I don't know if I can. This is pretty hard. You can pass, you can actually love God. Amen? But you're never going to, you're not going to do it perfectly until Jesus comes back. So in my notes I have, you can pass the test, but nobody aces it. You ain't getting 100%. Thursday, May 5th, 4 a.m., alarm goes off. I am out of the bed singing to the Lord. I'm going to go get my daughter. I'm so excited. 600 miles. It was but a moment. It flew by. It flew by. Saturday afternoon, just two days later, I'm complaining to my wife because I have to drive Emma to the airport on Monday because she was doing a study abroad thing. I'm like, honey, Oh, I just drove to Pullman and back. I don't want to drive to SeaTac and back. This is terrible. Can you take the day off work? I have things to do. 
I know, I know. Great husband. <laughs> Did I all of a sudden stop loving Emma? No. No. We're just mixed bags with mixed motives. Works in progress. We get tired. You can pass a test, but you won't ace it, okay? So put that as a framework as you move from this place. Hosea 9 is bleak. It ends bleak. Verse 17, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. God's anger over Israel's indifference to him and their sin is real. And God's anger towards us for our indifference to him and our sin is real. But it's not the final word. Thanks be to God, it is not the final word. Hosea is not, say in nine is not the final chapter. So we get to Hosea 11, there's going to be a louder word, a more sure word, a, a word of steadfast love. This is the Lord speaking out of Hosea 9. My people are bent on turning away from me. And then he goes on and says, how can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim. How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And we have a better word than that. See, the definitive word, the definitive declaration that God will not give us up is both the very thing we need to to, to comfort us in the midst of our wandering, but it's also the very thing we need to reorient our loves back to him, which is Jesus Christ. Those that trust in Jesus, they will not be rejected. Those that trust in Jesus, they will never be exiled. And it's in the story of the gospel, the good news of God's intervention in pursuit of his people that we find hope and help. Hope that even in our wandering, in our misplaced loves, that we are deeply loved. And help to help us learn to love rightly again. How do we learn to love what we should love? Okay, you're going to start here and we stay here and we never move on. It's this, know that you're loved. Know that you're loved in Christ Know that you're loved. 1 John 4, 19. Maybe let's, let's actually, could we read this together? Let's read this together. We love because he first loved us. We're going to read it again. And when you get to that because, you, you say it like you're, you're punching the devil in the face. <laughs> I don't know. But you got to like own it. This is how it happens. If your love has cooled, your affections have, have, have waned for the Lord. You are not going to conjure up in and of yourself what we need to sing and celebrate and make so loud is the great love with which he has loved us. All right? We love because he first loved us. It's, our love is always responsive. And how did he love us? He gave his son for us. And how did the son love us? He became sin for us. And he died on a cross for us. Came across a story. It was uh, from the summer of 1997. Garrett Griffin was vacationing in Florida and he decided to go 
uh, skydiving. He'd never done it before. And so when you do it the first time, you, you, uh, you're going to do it with an experienced instructor, and you're going to do what's called a tandem jump. You're going to be tethered to one another. And so uh, Garrett Griffin, he signs the waiver, jumps on the plane, and he's tethered to Michael Costello. And they jump out of the plane, and then 10,000 feet above the ground is the, the, you know, they're hurling towards the earth. You pull on the, the cord to make the chute go out. The chute doesn't go out. It's okay. There's a backup chute. Who goes to pull the backup chute? The backup chute doesn't go out. And as they began to spin towards the ground, the instructor, Michael, he wraps his arms and his leg around Garrett in such a way that he rotates them so that now Michael's back, the instructor's back is facing the ground and they're, they're looking up and right as they hit the ground, he grabs him in order to, to, to try to brace him against the impact. Michael died instantly. Garrett lived. It's just a stunning, stunning story. Private Emmanuel Mensa um, had just finished boot camp. He was in the National Guard, and he had immigrated from Ghana about five years earlier. Um, he was living in, in New York City, and his building caught fire. And so he ran into his neighbor's apartment, and he grabs his neighbor and pulled his neighbor out to safety, and then he ran back in. He pulled out four different people, They're sitting on the the sidewalk, alive, and then he goes in again. And at that point, he was overcome with smoke, and he never came out again. He gave his life for the ransom of others. That's how you're loved. God himself gave his life as a ransom that we might be forgiven that we might be reconciled, that we might not live in slavery, but we would be emancipated, that we would be set free, that we would be brought near. As I read those stories, all I could think is this is greater love has none than this than he laid down his life for his friends. You want to love God. You want your affections rekindled. Don't focus on how you love him. Focus on how he loves you. Start there. Stay there. The great insight of this chapter is worth remembering. We are what we love. And yet the greater gift of the entire Bible, it hinges on this, in Christ. We are loved. Even when we love the wrong things. And the very most important thing you can do if you want to learn to love is to look at how he loves. So we do every Sunday. So we do every time we gather. That's what we want to do every time we open the word. That's what we want to do every time we pray. That's what we want to do in all of our conversations to make that loud. Let's pray. Oh, Father. There's no illustration. There's no words. There's no, there, there's, there's no musical interlude. There, there's no emotional pull that can make the great love with which you have loved us in Christ real. We need the Spirit. So I pray that the gospel, the, the work of Christ becoming sin for us, the work of Christ dying in our place, the work of Christ being tortured for us, 
Being hung on a cross is our curse. Oh, God, would it melt us. I thank you for your word that says, even a smoldering wick you won't quench. And so even the smallest affections for Christ in this room, you're not going to snuff out. We ask that you would fan into flame. Make Christ dazzlingly beautiful to us. Make his love palpably real. That from that place, we might learn to love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know we're, we're, we're long today. I apologize for that with all the different announcements. Um, but thank you for hanging in there. But we don't want to shortchange this time. This is hopefully time that the Lord reorients our loves. That's one of the reasons we receive communion every single work as a church. There's four stations set up, each with a, a, a little wafer representing the body of Christ and a little juice rubbing his blood. These, this, this little token is so small compared to what it represents. So my, my hope for you is as you go into this, that this would be a time where you, where, where you don't come and say, God, look how much I've loved you this week. Look how faithful I've been to you. Look, look what I've pledged and sacrificed. And I'm sure so many of you have. We don't discount that. Oh, it's wonderful. And God smiles on that. But this is a time you just, you just go, look at how he loves me. Even me. Even me. Corbin will play a few songs. You're not in a hurry. Just let this speak a better word over you. Receive communion as you feel led.